0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Dan Rodriguez is the Harold Washington professor at Northwestern Law School, and previously served as dean from January 2012 through August 2018. In that role, Dan was instrumental in bringing an interdisciplinary focus to the law school curriculum. He's also advocated for the Law-Business-Technology Interface as chair of the ABA Center for Innovation. I always enjoy chatting with Dan about his work and where he sees the profession going. In today's episode, learn how Dan appeals to lawyers' self-interest and selflessness at the same time to break down barriers and how science and medicine can provide a model for
1: the future of the profession.
0: Dan, great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us on Pioneers and Pathfinders.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Really appreciate it.
0: Well, I look forward to our conversation. So my first question for you is, you've obviously had an incredible career thinking about legal education, thinking about the profession. We'll dive into some of those specific thoughts you have here in a second. But that's not the easy path to select trying to drive change or think through change in an entrenched profession like lawyers. What is it that gives you that passion for thinking differently about the profession and try to drive change? Where does that come from?
1: You know, thanks, uh, Steve, for that question and definitely happy to get into it. What I'd like to say is that, well, you know, that passion has been with me over the course, unallayed and basically in the same amounts over the course of my well, now it's more than a quarter century of a career, largely in academia, uh, you know, drank a cup of coffee as a lawyer, but for the most part in in the legal academy and teaching and and in deaning. But the truth of the matter is it really is in the last, maybe I'd say decade plus, where I have, you know, for a variety of reasons, really turned my attention much more in earnest in whatever constructive help I could provide in thinking about innovation through the education of lawyers and folks who come into the profession. Obviously, that's been my wheelhouse, as it were, professionally is in legal education, but also certainly seeing that, as your question presupposes, as nested in a larger, ambitious conversation about how we best provide legal services to folks in society since those two issues go hand in hand. So, in some ways, what jump-started My thinking about this and working on these issues with a kind of special verb is when I was recruited to become the dean at Northwestern. So that goes now back a decade, actually. And really thought about this is if I'm going to undertake this privilege, and it really is a privilege of helping to lead this great law school, then I really need to think about what we're doing and what we're after and what we in the legal academy are doing to facilitate change or stand in the way of change. So that's sort of that decade kind of uh, ago. Uh, focus is really what what kind of pushed me to to really invest in thinking about these issues.
0: What barriers have you found to sort of working through these issues, whether they're in law schools or the Center for Innovation at the ABA, which you chaired for a while, or the Commission on the yeah. Future of Legal Services? What are those obstacles to change in the profession that you've seen and run across?
1: So at a 10,000-foot level, What I would say is the principal barriers come from complacency, a sense of self-satisfaction by and large that lawyers and law faculties have about changing our profession. We could talk more about where I think that complacency comes from, but I'll simply observe it and say that that's been a big part of the problem. In the the world of haves and have-nots, lawyers are in the haves. Uh, In legal education, particularly if I may say so in the area of more elite legal education however one defines that where most of our graduates of our law school are going into big law most of our graduates are are going to be able to make a a good living and and for many of them a spectacular living complacency is not hard to imagine the other is what i not unrelated to that is what i'd call siloed thinking is we're focused like a laser beam in what we teach our students and and how we go into the practice with law and the legal profession and lawyering and all of that, that we've taken a precious little time, I think, as a profession to think about the ways in which law is nested in larger issues in society, certainly, but also how the knowledge, as it were, that we accumulate and inculcate in our students and our young lawyers is uh, multidisciplinary knowledge. Always has been, continues to be law and Law and economics, law and science, law and business, and so the siloed thinking about well we're going to think about this only about what law and lawyers do, I think has has kept us from really innovating and changing in, in significant ways.
0: Those are two great points let's let's go back to complacency for a moment because I might take the position that for the reasons you articulate, it's more than complacency. there's an active desire against change in the profession. For all the reasons you articulate, there's a great deal of, it's the haves and have nots as you point out. What the Richard Suskin is, how do you stand up in front of a room full of millionaires and tell them they need to change?
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: How have you sort of broken, try or at least tried to break through that complacency or active resistance
1: So let me say two things that are sort of conflicting in some in some ways, but I think they're both in key parts of the strategy that leaders in the profession, wherever we find ourselves, and I found myself as a dean for close to 14 years at two different schools, have to think about. One is appealing to self-interest, and the second is appealing to selflessness. So this is what I say about there being in conflict. So let's just focus on one aspect of the profession, which are law faculty, those who are teaching our students, by and large, full-time law faculty. On a tenure track and so what that means is after precious few years in the academy for the most part most will become tenured and will live out a highly beneficial in many respects lucrative lives in the profession without any particular impetus to change okay and sometimes they analogize deans to herding cats i'd simply say that you know there's very little that i have by way of carrots or sticks as a dean to utilize, to, to influence faculty members. So I, what I'm often in a position of doing is encouraging uh, faculty to think about change and think about improvement and think about reform by appealing to their self-interest, which is to say, how can you be a better law teacher, a better legal scholar, a better contributor to the profession by significantly refining and revising what you're doing, teaching and helping inculcate in our students values about the future of the profession? Rather than its present or its past. And I suspect it's a playbook, not dissimilar to what managing partners or leaders in in large law firms, you've been in that, in the well, as it were, have to use in order to to push. And I don't mean manipulation here. I'm talking about really appealing to self-interest. How does it advantage your cause? But the other part of it is I said it came from an opposite direction is selflessness. What we can as a profession do to truly pay it forward. How can we use our skills? Our talents, our abilities, and what's been given to us and what we've earned to really facilitate significant change in the profession. And I have to say that I have been struck on the positive side, on the glasses half full side, by the generosity and selflessness of many, many folks in the profession who simply in the absence of really understanding much of why change is needed, have, you know, again, I come back to complacency, but once presented with the imperative of change, have really used their strengths and their abilities and their gifts to really uh, uh, advance the cause.
0: You You make an interesting point about the sort of lack of tool sets leaders of lawyers, whether they're deans of law schools or managing partners of law firms have, it does come down to advocacy and persuasion and the ability to convince people that someone, either themselves or some group of people that they should care about, are better off by changing. Because uh, speaking right. from the law firm perspective, you have probably as few tools as you had as a dean to try to drive change.
1: Well, indeed. And, and let me make a point. I have I've I tell this anecdote a lot, or I mention it, because I think it's it's very revealing of the Of kind of the law firm part here here, here's one of the challenges how do law firms and those lawyers in law firms who really know the system is broken and know that it needs to be changed in a particular way so for example knowing that we in the law schools need to send out into the world young lawyers beginning lawyers who have a taste and a temperament for innovation but also have practice proficiencies i know practice readiness is a phrase you hear bandied about I don't much care for the phrase but I get the idea which is having folks who can really hit the ground running and provide values and so over and over and over again as Dean I hear from partners in law firms well law schools you need to do a better job how can we make you as law firms listen to us to know that you need to develop different educational models and different changes and the anecdote I give is I was at a, in a moment of weakness I was at a, a speaking before a large uh, law firm, which I will not name, and the partners were making that same point. And I don't know what got into me, but I answered the question in a way differently than I usually do, because I usually give a long, convoluted answer. You know, change is incremental, blah, blah. I said, you know when We're going to really start changing in law schools. When you guys start voting with your feet, when you, as, as managing partners and partners of law firms, actually reward innovation in who you hire, rather than reward performance in law school, ranking of a law school, what have you, Is when finally those of us in the legal academy will take to heart the message that we better change because in the absence of change and adaptation, our students are not going to have the opportunities that that are presented. We know that the highest echelon of law schools could have a curriculum in almost anything, and the leading law firms will still be the path to their doorway, and vice versa. We know that schools that are way way down the pecking order of law school ranking and reputation could develop the you know world beating set of innovations and uh, a curriculum that is responsive to modern imperatives of change, whatever, they're still not going to get entry-level jobs at these law firms. And that's a shame. It means the market is not making us change in any significant extent. And so I, I think that is also a hindrance. And I, I take your point earlier. It goes beyond complacency. It's active resistance to the kind of adaption and change that would really help move the ball forward.
0: I'm curious as to the reaction of the partners in the room when you made that point, because I've made similar points during my tenure, because I do think if the market isn't telling you you have to change, people are going to sit there and go, why should I change? Uh, And the same goes for law firms. If the clients aren't rewarding it and demanding it, it's very difficult to say that it's broken.
1: Well, so it's hard to summarize the response because, of course, these are different. These are, and, and let me not come across as condescending to these lawyers at law firms. They make their judgments and their choices in the best interest of their firms and their clients. I get that. So, my somewhat snarky comment that, you know, move away from the rankings and actually look at what we're doing, you know, should be understood in that context. Having said that, I think there's a couple reactions that I hear from seasoned lawyers all the time. Number one is, that collective action problem, is that you know, you're asking a lot to ask a, one particular law firm to get off the equilibrium path, as it were. And it's like the billable hour phenomenon. You can get a group of managing partners in a room, and, and you know, 80 out of 100 might say, absolutely, we should move, move away from billable hour. But who's going first? right? right. <laughs> so the collective right. action problem has enormous pressure. And the other thing is, again, it goes back to self-interest, is as firms are very profitable with the standard playbook. Of hiring the most, the elite of the elite, right? The high performing students from the highest echelon of schools, and are relatively satisfied with the talent pool that is there, then what is the incentive to try moving in a very different direction? Now, I think that question is not a rhetorical question. It can be answered. I think it could be answered by, you know, data-driven. Uh, analysis about you know what actually you can do to produce a better crop if I can use that expert, crude example mm-hmm. of you know of future uh, future lawyers, and then look at what the analysis reveals so i think that I think both of those can be answered the collective action problem and the we always should do it because what we've been doing is successful, but it's challenging and and also quite frankly, it asks a lot of the law schools to take a real risk to change around their curriculum to look beyond the usual metrics of talent to uh, retool the faculty around different paradigms of, of innovation is you're taking a chance.
0: So what chances did you decide to take? You take over Northwestern as dean about 10 years ago, and Northwestern is a fabulous law school. Uh, it's one of the top law schools in the country. Turns out great students. Yet, as you said, it was a, sort of a moment for you to say, I think I can use this opportunity to make what's already really good better." So what was your decision making process to decide where to start and how to begin that that change process what were what were the big things you saw that you wanted to tackle
1: you know, uh, the, the the at the top of my list, and I appreciate your comments, I, I take them both with gratitude, and if I may, as a, an accurate description, you know, of a school <laughs> that was strong for many, many decades before I, you know, I was a gleam in their eye and would have a legacy and continues to have a legacy to build on. In some ways, that's not coincidental. I think it's among the leading law schools are those that have the foundation to enable them to take chances, right, to take the risks <laughs> that we might not expect of a, of a much less prestigious, a much, a much well-established law school. If not us, right, then who? Then who? But to, yeah, exactly. So to me, the top of the list was listening to our stakeholders, our key stakeholders, which include those employers, real and prospective employers of our graduates, including but not limited to, you know, to AmLaw 100 law firms, although they do, in fact, hire, at least in the first uh, initial after graduation, the majority of our classes. And also our stakeholders, our students, and to find out what they were expecting and demanding of us in terms of our programs. Now, now I was prepared to hear, well, more of the same, you know, that is continue to do what you're doing. And I wouldn't regard that as uh, being a defeat. In fact, I would have regarded that as, well, that would be comforting because we can continue to, you know, build on our strength. You know, you want to hire great faculty, continue to hire great faculty. But that's not what I heard. What I heard was, on the one hand, the generosity that you just indicated in speaking about the accomplishments of the school thus far. But on the other hand, hearing that the system is broken in some important ways, is broken in some key ways, and that innovation just rattle off a couple of examples in uh, multidisciplinary knowledge, which I mentioned, the law and peace, the development of technology and, and thinking about greater use of technology, expanding the scope of what we sometimes call experiential education including but not limited to clinical education, the development of what used to be called soft skills, sometimes they're called leadership skills, that all of those could and should become not only baubles, you know, in the curriculum, but key central parts of what we were looking to do in educating our our students. And it wasn't just my ideas from like the head of Zeus, far from it. It was the ideas of other stakeholders who from their own experience in the profession, and from the other side of the coin, young people, that is students who were looking to develop this skill set, were saying, you really got to do more of this. And you really have to think about creative ways of enhancing your curriculum and what I call the learning infrastructure of the school in order to create you know, future leaders and change agents.
0: The focus on multidisciplinary skill sets, to me, is critical for lawyers, particularly to survive in this in this era. And I went to law school a very long time ago, many, many decades ago, and that certainly was not something that was embedded in the law school curriculum when I went to school. And I think it's a fairly recent development. What were your challenges in implementing and selling that concept? Because you developed what, from the outside, appears to be a very robust platform whether it's technology or the School of Engineering or the Business School, the various programs. How did you go from A to B?
1: So let me focus on one aspect of that. And since you you referenced engineering, focus on kind of law, STEM, or law and science. That's one aspect, among others, of multidisciplinary knowledge. You and I both went to law school a long time ago. So we went to law school in the days in which you could say in class, well, you know, I don't do math. That's part of the reason I came to law school, and not be embarrassed to say that. (laughs) Now you would be embarrassed to say that if you were a law student. Whether or not you did math, as it were, the notion that you can get through three years of law school and beyond without exposure to quantitative skills and to data And how to utilize data, to say nothing of of new technologies. I think those days are gone, and rightly so. So, in thinking about the imperative, and I really think it's not just a useful adjunct, but it's an imperative to have our students encounter and be able to use data and develop enough exposure to scientific techniques to be dangerous, as the saying goes. What what I saw as uh, as a value, particularly given that here we were, this fine law school in a in a major research university, was to look out from Beyond our silos and look at the ways in which our colleagues in other departments at the university were developing that knowledge and look for opportunities of partnership. So, we had had a very well established JDMBA program for many, many years, long before I came to Northwestern and worked with Kellogg, a fabulous business school. So, we knew how to do collaboration, we knew how that could work. But what was somewhat uh, more unusual, but I think really yielded some great benefits, was look to our uh, schools of medicine and engineering and also in some of the sciences, and look at ways of capitalizing on developments in their respective schools to help enrich the, the knowledge set for students in our schools. So when we were, for example, looking at courses, experiential courses on legal innovation, some aspect, not all of it, but some of the aspect involves the use of technology. And when you're talking about the use of technology, you're thinking of some you know modern pushing the envelope type things like machine learning and natural language processing and how we might think about artificial intelligence. Now, we weren't trying to develop AI within the law school. That's sort of above our pay grade, as it were. Right. right? There were wonderful colleagues who were doing those kinds of things in and around the Chicagoland community and on the Northwestern campus that could help our students. And you know what? Vice versa. It turns out that in, in other parts of the university, including in the sciences, some exposure to law, the rule of law and, and legal principles and legal fundamentals, is enormously beneficial to doing what they're doing. So really trying to build those bridges, bridge building, was what, what I was mm-hmm. really, really focused on during my time as dean. And I, I believe a lot of those bridges are, are still being built.
0: Yeah, I've had the privilege of speaking and teaching a little bit at some of those multidisciplinary courses, predominantly through Dan Lina's work. Yep. And what strikes me is the enthusiasm of the students for this type of learning. And they're both law students and engineering students in the classes I've had a chance. And to me, that speaks incredibly highly of the concept and the execution on it, because the students are key stakeholders, too. And their, their reaction is, at least in the classes I've been in, has been really remarkable.
1: So, well, I appreciate could've. you saying that, and, and I'm glad to have that shout out to uh, my colleague, Dan Lina, who I know has been on your program before and is a big fan of yours. And absolutely, it's getting the actual, the human beings who have real talents and real enthusiasm for this multidisciplinary you know, move that becomes infectious and really helps our students. Now, there's a however coming. <laughs> and if I could use the same bridge building metaphor, we're halfway across the bridge, but we're not yet on the other side. And Here's what I would say about that is for my larger group of stakeholders, and forgive me saying mine, they're not mine, but I'm thinking about it from the vantage point of when I was dean. You think about those group, including all the rest of the faculty, all of the student body, you know, university leadership alums, they still can sometimes look at the kinds of courses, like the courses that Dan Linna teaches. We had Bill Henderson, who's another real leader in the profession, who's taught for us in the past, and others. They sometimes look at that as, wow, that's really interesting novelty that that's happening, but it doesn't really impact me because it doesn't change how I'm going to teach civil procedure or torts or corporate law or whatever. So when I hear that, I hear, well, you never know. (laughs) You never know how much improvement can be made if you take some of the most sacrosanct parts of the curriculum. You and I remember that from our own experience in law school. Many of your listeners will too. That first year is so critical where we create the kind of inculcate ourselves, the values, the culture of the law, that's the required courses, the ones that march from generation to generation, where we really will know, I'll get up in my soapbox and say this, where we really know the change will happen in the legal curriculum and innovation will really become a permanent part in multidisciplinary knowledge, it's when we start seeing that change become embedded in some of our core courses. So that when students study civil procedure, they can't graduate or finish civil procedure without understanding e-discovery. When they study property, I teach first-year property, they can't really understand the component parts of first-year property without understanding data privacy and property, where they can't really understand how we record mortgages and all of that. I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole list, but what the late Deborah Rohde, who was such an important figure in legal innovation, taught for many years at Stanford, just passed away a few months ago. She used to talk about something called the pervasive method. When she was talking about legal ethics, she was saying, look, you can teach a course on legal ethics. Everybody has to take it and go through that. But what you really know you're teaching ethical lawyering is where every course has a key component part that involves legal ethics and how we think about professional responsibility. And I feel the same way about legal technology. We need to have those kinds of courses embedded throughout the curriculum so that students think about change from the very first month in law school. And they don't have to wait to take an elective course in the last spring semester, you know, before they graduate in their third year and get out there. I think that'll be a key part of all of this.
0: Absolutely agree. Last question I have for you on the law school, and then I want to turn my yeah. attention a little bit to some of your work with the ABA. I read an article about a program that Kellogg and the law school are, are doing. It was referred to as the San Francisco Immersion Program. Yep. Yeah which is, I don't know much more about it other than what I read, which is that it's a sort of a 10-week externship coupled with lectures set in San Francisco, and I presume this is pre-pandemic. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Did you view it as a success? Is it a sort of example of what we might see more from law yeah. schools in the future?
1: Yes and yes, and you did a great job of uh, summarizing. It is an immersion program. It's The serendipity is that we have Northwestern University has a share of a building out on Market Street in San uh-huh. Francisco, really nice location, and it was developed as a consortium out of Medill, the School of Journalism, and the School of Engineering. And so, during my deanship, I thought, hey, maybe we can become a part of that, and so can Kellogg, the School of Business. And so, we have the physical space for that, and it's like Muhammad to the mountain or bringing the mountain to Muhammad. In some ways, we thought that maybe, in addition to the collaborations that we were doing on innovation and on legal technology and law and business. In Chicago, we could also look to provide an immersive experience for our students out there in San Francisco. It wasn't a random part of the country to do that, of course. Doing that in the Bay Area enables enormous, opens doors for students in doing externships. Really, really rigorous, carefully supervised externships, not just go out there and go work for a company, but to embed our students in companies while also having a robust curriculum that overseen by our faculty in collaboration with our colleagues at Kellogg. You asked whether this will be a harbinger of things to come, absolutely. We've also, in the pandemic, unfortunately, put a, at least a delay on this. We're thinking of having an immersion program, not thinking, we're, we're working on an immersion program in the entertainment industry, in Los Angeles where students would be not dissimilar to this, embedded in the L.A. area and be able to take advantage of all of the immersive experiences that could happen there. So it's challenging, frankly, I mean, to, you know, to move across country for some period of time and to have the adequate supervision and all of that. But this is a point that hopefully will segue into our discussion of the ABA. You know, law schools can carp, as we so often do, about how heavily regulated we are. We have It all has to be three years and, you know, that certain number of credits. But there's a lot more room for innovation than meets the eye. And so to have immersive experiences and, you know, uh, semesters or parts of semesters away, I really think is the cutting edge. That along with maybe a greater use of online remote learning that's not just related to the pandemic, where we've all tried to sort of make do as best we could, I think will be, you know, really at the cutting edge of new modalities of instruction. And why the heck shouldn't Northwestern help lead that effort?
0: Absolutely. You've been in the forefront of a lot of stuff over many, many years. Why not be at the forefront here? That's a a great point. Let's talk a little bit about your time working with the ABA because you were on the Commission for the Future of Legal Services and you were chair of the Center for Innovation. And I know the report I'm referring to on the Commission for the Future of Legal Services, I think, was before your time on the commission. They did a report in 2016, which highlighted.
1: No, I was there. That was I was on the commission all the way up to and including the issuance wow. of that report, <laughs> and which, played a, played a role in that.
0: Which was, I thought, a fascinating report. It's five years ago now, so perhaps yeah. we're talking ancient history. But I thought it did a marvelous job. While I had issues with the recommendations as to whether they went far enough, sure. In terms of the description of where the legal profession was, particularly the access to justice gap in the country. To me, that was required reading for anybody that cares about the profession. Sort of give us your overview of where you see the profession, not just in law schools and big law, but as it relates to U.S. society in general.
1: Sure. A quick anecdote in connection with my work on the commission to get to your question. So, yes, it seems like so long ago, but it also seems like just yesterday. The work of the commission, which was really created as a brainchild of the then president, William Hubbard, who did so much by creating this commission, and led by Judy Perry Martinez, herself an enormous innovator who went on to be the president of the ABA, was really to look at uh, developing some significant attention to reform that would be focused not just on the well being of lawyers, but on the well being of clients. And recipients of legal services. When we finally, at the end of three years' uh, hard work, issued this report, I suppose it had as a consequence it made no one particularly happy. There were those like yourself, and for these folks, I, I have a special amount of sympathy and solicitude. It didn't go nearly far enough in really tackling some of the really big issues: unauthorized practice of law and what that should mean, investment of non-lawyers in law firms, and all of that. And on the other hand, there were folks who said, "Who do we think we were, suggesting and fomenting this change?" From within the profession so i guess we should be happy that no one was happy but but uh but that's uh,
0: a success
1: yeah exactly but when i look at it see for you know five years afterwards and this is a connection i think with the work uh that grew out of it with the center for innovation which was one of the most important follow-ups to the work is that it pointed to a world in which we would look at reform and the situation of our profession from the vantage point of data and from the vantage point of need and what clients and the public were telling us. Now that seems like an utterly banal observation. Well, how could it be any different? Well, the answer is for decades it was different. The ABA was developing policies and protocols and regulation, you know, proposed regulation, largely from the kind of the tunnel vision of what would seem to promote the best interests of lawyers, and by which I don't mean it was entirely protectionist. I think there were sincere, well-meaning efforts to look at it from the vantage point of you know making more effective lawyers, but without any significant reference to how we measure success and failure and how reforms are led by the best available evidence, the best data that we could possibly collect, the best use of social science techniques, experiments, and all of that. And I think one important takeaway from the report of the commission that has really led, I think, to some really significant progress up to the present within the ABA, where you wouldn't expect to see a whole lot of Mm -hmm. uh, energy toward change, is being a more data driven, evidence based organization. And the Center for Innovation, which I was proud to chair for a couple of years and work on, it's under very able leadership with a terrific team and uh, infrastructure, is providing data, collecting uh, information, doing studies working with other stakeholders, including on, on issues of technology, to help figure out where change needs to come in the profession. And if I may, some of the efforts at regulatory reform that we're seeing underway actively, Utah and Arizona with their so-called regulatory sandboxes, California, which is looking to change, Michigan and other states, is the focus on following where the best evidence leads us, following you know, to where that's long been a tradition in medicine, thank God, <laughs> long been a tradition in the, because uh, how could it be otherwise, in, in the sciences, it's starting to become a much bigger tradition in law. And I'd say it's about time.
0: What's your reaction to the efforts in Utah and Arizona, in particular, the regulatory sandbox? I know in Utah, a couple of businesses are now operating under that sandbox. can't quite recall the names. Law on call, I think, is one. Rocket Lawyers another. Yeah. That are non-lawyer owned legal providers. What's what's your reaction to that experimentation?
1: Well, I think it's the fact of experimentation is a wonderful, wonderful step. And kudos to leaders actually on the court of all places in Utah, and then also in Arizona. And now there's a task force well underway in California. Uh, in the interest of disclosure, I'm involved in a task force in Michigan of all places looking at this. So I think there's really a, a movement That's underway. And that movement is centered around two big reforms. You mentioned one of them, which is allowing for non-lawyer investment in law firms, which is currently prohibited under, well, it's it's prohibited under the Model Rule 5.4 under the ABA. So this regulatory sandbox is providing a limited room for experimentation in these particular states under some amount of regulation. And the key point to know, and this goes back to the theme I was mentioning just, just a moment ago, is we're going where the evidence leads us. So maybe we'll find out over some period of time that the efforts at non-lawyer investment in law firms are a big nothing burger, <laughs> that, that they won't mm-hmm. be that common. Too soon to tell. Or maybe we'll find that they actually redound to the detriment of a lawyer's fiduciary duties to clients as best we can measure. Or maybe we'll find that they don't move the access to justice needle. We hope we find the opposite. But this is exactly what a regulatory sandbox is, which is a vehicle for data driven experimentation now i think quite frankly what it's going to take is much larger cohort of states because our system as you well understand in the united states and 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 so do your listeners is decentralized system it's all 50 states and so you know god bless utah and arizona for their experiments but i think that it's going to take more states and some bigger states quite frankly to know that there's really been some momentum uh, developed so it's a little too soon to tell what these experiments are going to show but I think we've already seen some evidence that there will be some movements forward. I should also mention, we, we focused here on non-lawyer ownership, but the other big part of the regulatory sandbox is widening access and opportunity for so-called non-lawyers. It's a terrible phrase. We don't talk about non lawyers or non-scientists, but paraprofessionals, alternative legal service providers, mm-hmm. those without a JD to provide, again, under regulation, legal services and provide assistance, not just the work of paralegals, very important in its own right, but actually provide direct access and utilizing technology for those purposes. That is a a crucial part of closing the access to justice gap. A crucial and necessary, I think, is widening access. And so we're seeing in these regulatory sandboxes much greater willingness of the state's to allow that greater access to legal services consistent with their UPL, or their so-called unauthorized practice of law prohibitions. And that'll be a really fascinating development to, to watch as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. I can't recall now if it was the state of Washington or Oregon had an alternative licensure system. Yeah, that, Washington. Yeah, Washington, yeah. Last time I saw it, I've not checked recently. Didn't have as much take up as everybody would have expected. Well, this
1: is we could do a whole program on this, and 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 I think your listeners would become bored maybe more quickly than you and I would, or maybe not. But a very short comment on that is: yes, the state of Washington a number of years ago adopted what they called triple LT limited license legal technicians in one area of law and family law, and it's I don't know it's a ten year experiment. I forget the timing, but some years, and just in the last few months, the state supreme court greatly retreated from that and essentially Mm. ended it and did so on their assertion, which I believe is erroneous. I think the facts belie this, is that it didn't really take off and didn't really have a huge amount of success. What I would say from those who I know have looked at the data very carefully, and here I'm banging the same drum is you got to look where the facts lead, is it never had a fighting chance. The restrictions and the regulations that were imposed on it from its very creation gave it too little of an opportunity to truly move the needle. Now, I don't think there's really any, not even the Supreme Court said that it harmed consumers or that it had a deleterious effect. All they said was it didn't have quite the positive outcomes and meaningful reform that they uh, intended. All of that is to say this, if a state, and again, mentioning Utah and Arizona and some of these other states, undertakes significant efforts to expand the scope of legal services provided by whether you call them triple LTs or paraprofessionals or, as New York calls them, sometimes court navigators, what have you, you have to give them the funding. You have to have appropriate oversight and even regulation. You have to provide economic incentives, and you have to provide transparent information to consumers in order to create the conditions under which you actually have significant performance by these professionals and that you can examine whether there will be effective change.
0: Well, Dan, on that, I think we've run out of time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you uh, spending time with us. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.